1: All right. Joining us now on Through the Ringer, you know him as the Press Box's very own Brian Curtis. Brian, great to have you back on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Tate Frazier, (laughs) as always. Yeah, I'm fired up because there's a a lot of conversation happening this morning. You and I, we're fans of sports media. Uh, We like to consume sports media. We like to watch these television programs and debate the debates that are happening on those TV shows. And there is a seismic shift. That is happening right now in the world of debate television. You have Shannon Sharp, who was once with Skip Bayless, now going to ESPN. Uh, to be with Stephen A. Smith on First Take. You have Skip debuting his new version of the show, uh, Richard Sherman, one of the faces of that, Michael Irvin and Keyshawn Johnson. Let's start there because there is a clip that is circulating this morning, and it is those three that I just mentioned and not Skip Bayless yelling about things. And And how is that going to end up, and what are your thoughts? Because <laughs> we're we're learning a lot about the, uh, the new landscape of uh, debate television.
2: It's a real Marvel superheroes <laughs> crossover event vibe to that yes. clip
1: we're talking about dc right now and then we'll get to the disney marvel side but like the, the dc side of yeah, this right DC now crossover yes event. yes yeah because we
2: got <laughs> irv and we got Keyshawn, who we knew from espn yes we got richard sherman who we knew from having a terribly awkward moment with skip bayless way back when on for ESPN. calling him
1: out and basically it was like how many points per game did you have and then stephen a smith sat over there and just smirked
2: <laughs> <laughs> they've all got like 20 things to say right at the same time It's funny. I think these shows get better when they get more personal. Mm. Skip and Shannon was never more interesting than at the end when there seemed to be something really, really big at stake there that was bigger than, you know, you think Cooper Rush should be starting for the Cowboys in the playoffs. And I don't, you know, (laughs) sports topic du jour. And I just wonder how personal this will get if today was any indication we'll get there pretty quick.
1: Yes, yeah, cuz it was hot. It was very hot. Skip in this clip that's circulating around. Basically, and they're talk the craziest part to me or you know the most ironic part is they're talking about something in his wheelhouse, right? There are things that are in Skip Bayles's wheelhouse. LeBron James. Number 2 is probably maybe even number 1 the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, yes. um, 100%. covered them as a beat reporter. So you're talking about something that he is very close to, something that he is very knowledgeable on and something that he considers himself to be kind of the, the voice on the Dallas Cowboys. And instead on his show where he created this platform, there's three other people, one of them, a former Cowboys legend and Michael Irvin yelling over top of him. And I think that's, what's going to be fascinating moving forward because the platform was created by skip created by Stephen a so to speak, but now they're bringing in these, these outsiders and they're supposed to kind of like bend the knee, but they might not.
2: No. And I think again, again, we, we sort of rear up at these shows when we feel like the debate is fake, mm-hmm. when we feel like it's a show. It's scripted, right? So, whenever. That was the
1: knock on Shannon early on. They were like, he, knock he's. Knock on everything. Right. They're, they're like, he's acting. He can't like LeBron this much. Right. And then he tried to fight John Moran's dad, and we're like, I don't think he's acting. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's into it.
2: <laughs> yeah. But whenever it kind of cuts through the artifice and you feel like there is actually jockeying for something. Mm hmm. That's bigger than, let us face it, a Trey Lance segment, which is what they were doing today. Right. This whole thing is, like, so weird for me because I grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. Skip was writing about the Cowboys, as you say. Michael Irvin was (laughs) playing for the Cowboys. And I just remember the biggest, like, sports radio tempest, and he was on sports radio at the time, was always something about, like, the Cowboys backup quarterback. Mm. It was never can Troy Aikman win the big one exactly? That probably happened. But it was about little things. It was about minutia. That's when it truly, everything was just on fire and people were yelling and people were hot on the radio and stuff like this. So this is just... It's a very weird flashback for me.
1: It's kind of par for the course when it comes to Cowboys uh, conversations, like you said, and probably the most famous person on the Cowboys is always going to be the backup quarterback because, you know, it's always Troy Aikman's fault for his fumbles or Tony Romo's fault for his untimely interceptions, right? When you're a Cowboys fan, you always want to, you know, you're going to blame the QB1 there. And then right now you have the situation where Dak, you know, all this footage is coming out in the offseason of him throwing interceptions, and then Trey Lance, You they make this trade, and now the people that love, you know, QB2 in, in that kind of toxic conversation, they're saying – what about Lance? Why don't we give him a run? He was a top three pick. Look at his talent. Should he be that guy? And that's why, like you said, it kind of creates this, this moment of the minutia of it all. It explodes. But the crazy part is the guy who usually lights the fu- the fuse and, ex- and explodes himself wasn't even a part of it, which is fascinating. And I no. think that's the real conversation. Will Skip be kind of more in the background now, and he just has the the kind of the arena that he created.
2: Let me answer that question. No, <laughs> you will not be. I don't think they're gonna have all three guys on the show at the same time. I don't, normally.
1: I don't. I hope not.
2: I think we're parsing the <laughs> parceling this out. Like Rachel Nichols is also supposed to be on the show in right. a way I didn't totally understand. But it's the Skip Bayless show, and the idea is I think you bring in one person a day to do battle with Skip. And I think whatever happened today with everybody, you know, yelling and him kind of taking a secondary role, that, that's not going to happen for very long.
1: I was at Fox for three years and, you know, we would go to the same studio and there were multiple times where I got in the elevator with Skip Bayless and he literally had his finch, like his fist clenched ready. as he just stood. There. It was like he was like he was ready. If I tapped him, he would have punched me in the face. You know what I mean? And that's how he came into work. He came into work fired up and I never said a word to him. I might give him a head nod. You know what I mean? But that's how he he came in to do battle. And if you talk to anyone around the studio, they're like, he's at the gym, you know, at 3.30 a.m. I mean, he he is, I mean, maniacal when it comes to like how he preps for these shows. And he now is in the same pool as Stephen A where you plug and play who your sparring partner is. And that's not always the same consistency that he had with Shannon.
2: And that was, that's what's different now. That it's one host. Mm -hmm. It was Stephen A and Skip. Now it's one host versus... A changing
1: lineup yes of people and if they don't like one of the rotating cast they cast aside and then they bring in another yeah, person let's
2: get mad dog in here uh,
1: mad dog is can we can we talk about that so so that's happening now with skip bayless and his show and he'll have different sparring partners steven a's been doing this yeah and on wednesdays if you've been watching over the past six months he brings in chris mad dog russo who is one of my favorite people in sports media because Amazing. The dog likes to bark and sometimes he'll bite. And uh, Mad Dog comes in on Wednesdays, and he's not afraid. I mean, they'll do a top five list, and he has five guys from the 1970s. You know um, what I mean? It's I mean, unbelievable. This is what Mad Dog does, <laughs> and it is great television. How how much have you watched that iteration of Stephen A., and what are your thoughts on that setup?
2: It just amazed me it took them this long to get to Mad Dog. Because <laughs> he's always been the guy. He's always been the guy. He can talk about anything, right. any any sport, any controversy, <laughs> any list he will make it. And it's the absolute commitment to the bit. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem with people that walk in there, I remember Dan Orlovsky telling me this one time, he's like, when you go in to do first take, you have to be ready to be wrong. You Mm -hmm. cannot be afraid to be wrong. Because if you go in like we do, like we're writing a ringer piece. Well, on the other hand, on the other, you can't do that.
1: Yeah, you're trying to see both sides, right? You go into like a little bit of uh, trepidation, right? Yeah. You have to go in full throttle. You have to say things like, I won't Iguadala, right? I mean, that you, you
2: have to pick one take. You got one take, one lane, s- you drive down. <laughs> you
1: slam your hand on the table.
2: Totally. Chris Russo doesn't <laughs> mind that. He's not worried about that. He's not like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, (laughs) awful announcing is going to do an item about me tomorrow. He doesn't care. Mm. He's ready to go.
1: Yeah, and that's how Stephen A. wakes up. And obviously Stephen A. has this podcast now. He's also, I mean. The
2: aggregated Stephen A. content I get on Twitter every day. I mean, that's like, that's my whole day. It's like Dove Kleinman (laughs) repackaging Adam Schefter rumors or whatever. And then it's Stephen A. said X on his podcast, Mm -hmm. on First Take, on everything. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, okay. He, does anybody else anybody else do anything today?
1: It's kind of fascinating, and, and I've been watching it. So he goes on first take, and he, and he gives a bold take. Like, he says, so-and-so. He said recently, Lonzo Ball cannot sit down without pain, right? That was the big one that just happened. He went on first take, and he said that. Lonzo Ball then sees that news cycle aggregated, and then he responds and says, here's a video of me sitting down outside of this pool five times. Stephen A., you're a liar. Calls him out. Then – it used to be you have to wait a day to to see Stephen A's response. No, he had two hours later. He's on his podcast and he's like, Lonzo Ball, I have your medical record records. Records, <laughs> I know your doctors. I talked to your father. You know what I mean? And it's like the news cycle. Instead of it being twenty four hours, now it's like one to two hours before we get a response. And it's yes, it's seven cycles in one day. I mean, and it's I insane. feel
2: within like the sports media there was a kind of unspoken. We're like, okay, don't don't acknowledge that. Just don't right. Don't give in to this this has its audience, <laughs> but as an outsider, if you feed this, it just gets bigger and bigger <laughs> yes. and bigger. But now it's like everybody forgot. They're like, did you see an A said today? Tweet. Boom. Here's the clip. But I guess there's just so much material and it, probably does well in aggregation world that at some point you just can't resist it.
1: how do we deal with the aggregators i mean this is uh, my final point about sports do we media.
2: care about that here at the ringer the aggregators I, I, i've never I, heard anything about that
1: here. I, i've seen a lot of uh yelling <laughs> to the skies about these aggregators but especially with the the blue check mark goes away on twitter you can buy it back i guess if you want but in general yeah. there is now this like information feels very lost in translation and the aggregators they're fiending off this especially the trollers who like to aggregate and then troll people on the on top of it um how do we deal with this how do we parse through this like are there going to be classes in journalism school about how to deal with aggregation
2: <laughs> i went through this wormhole the other day because there was a story that got aggregated about apple being in talks to buy espn mm-hmm. now that's sort of on my beat and that's sort of a big deal and that's something deal. we whisper about could that happen could they get in on it somehow but it was an aggregator who was tweeting out a story with that headline so I clicked through the story. The story he had tweeted was itself aggregation of another story. <laughs> then I went to the third story and the third story didn't say that. It mm. was just wondering aloud, which is the kind of thing we do at a bar or a right. well, or on yeah, text or whatever. General thought, yeah. 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 Could this happen? Yeah. And so it's like somehow we got to like three layers removed. So there's one, there's like the dishonest aggregation, the clip, the weird, you know, you takes somebody mm-hmm. out of context. But on the other hand, there's just like, I'm not even sure anybody's doing that on purpose. I think they're just like, well, here's someone. <laughs> and you're just like, what am I reading? And how do I get this out of my feed? Right. I don't want
1: this. And I don't want to go down through the wormhole of trying no. to figure out who the original source is. And like you said, a lot of times you get to the end of the rabbit hole, wormhole, whatever you want to call it. And you say, oh, this is just a guy who th- just is yeah thinking out loud
2: <laughs> it's getting to be like those weird ads you know when you're like scrolling down a page it's like you know that's i sometimes of the 80s. i go down
1: the wormhole and i'm like i said that <laughs> you know, like, me. yeah
2: right exactly you know those ads you get where it's like this star of the 80s looks like crap you'll never yeah, believe right. who it is like that we're kind of at that level of nfl news and nba news at this point we're just like eh. Uh, But you can't escape it.
1: You can't escape it because there's going to be seven cycles a day, maybe even more. And uh, we're just all trying to keep up with the hubbub. Speaking of uh, keeping up with things in media, you kept up and got caught up with the Monday Night Football. Crew. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that because you, you talked about how there were guys at ESPN that are now at Fox. Now you got what used to be, when you thought of Fox NFL, you thought of these two guys, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, For sure. And now they're Monday Night Football guys, and uh, they already had a hilarious moment in preseason. Uh, we can talk about that. But first and foremost, <laughs> just being around them. The handshake them, with uh, the handshake, new yes. commander's
2: owner. Right. Yeah, Josh that, Harris. That, yeah, that was... was- something else
1: well yeah so you first of all the whole josh
2: thing in the booth with that ill-fitting polo shirt it's like did he go to my closet the I, billionaire's dressed like me? Is this he what just, happened here? He
1: seemed like a fish out of water. You know what I mean? They, they dropped him in that environment. <laughs> I don't think he expected to be on camera. And then, uh, if you didn't see this, Joe Buck was making a point. He's, as most announcers do, he's speaking with his hands. Yes. And his hand is is out in front of Josh Harris. And we're about two minutes into the interview at that point, And he just grabs it and shakes it. And Troy Aikman just starts laughing <laughs> right there. So, I mean... Talk about, like, th- these are moments that are just happening in real time. I mean, that was so strange to see.
2: It was so unbelievable. <laughs> it was so unbelievable. And just the whole idea of, like, seeing announcers at all is kind of funny to mm-hmm. me. Because we hear them for three right. plus hours. But we rarely see them uh, unless they do that weird camera thing now where we get the reaction on a big play. And they're like, ah! Kevin
1: Harlan's nightmare. As we yeah, mean, he it does turns into like like Kevin that. Harlan's
2: nightmare. Um, the Joan Troy thing is fascinating to me. Because, you know, I am old enough and you were old enough to remember when they were the young guys. Mm-hmm. And now they're the guys, you know, especially with Al Michaels on Thursday night football. Now it's like, they're, they're the standard. They're, they're the kind of number one crew and certainly the longest tenured crew together. And to watch those guys become the old men in the room, or let's say the middle-aged men in the room, don't want to be insulting here, but they just like, it's very, very funny. Mm. And it's also funny of the ESPN, which just cast around so long for Monday night football and tried to figure it out. And they're like, okay, we give up. We'll take Fox DNA And just make it our DNA and then
1: wipe our hands clean and say, we got a proven entity. We got your best team. We got your A team, which then in my mind, does that mean Monday Night Football has the best team? Is that the the pinnacle of, you know, calling an NFL game right now?
2: It's really it's a good question. I mean, I think Sunday night's probably still in the conversation, but that's the only one really in the conversation Mm. in terms of the best team. And I think, you know, something really interesting happening at ESPN the last couple of years, which is that ESPN in the last NFL deal, got a Super Bowl. In fact, they got two Super Bowls. So this Super Bowl is coming after the 2026 season. So 2027, February 2027. That's arguably going to be the biggest day in ESPN history. It's never happened before that they've had a Super Bowl on their air. It'll be on ABC, too, but it's going to be on ESPN's airwaves. So everything they've been doing over the last year and change, you can read it like this. They are putting their Super Bowl team together. Okay, we got the announcers, Joe and Troy. Those are Super Bowl level announcers. What happened last week? We put Scott Van Pelt on Monday Night Countdown. Mm. So when we have this eight-hour pregame show on Super Bowl Sunday, who's going to be hosting that? SVP. Uh, Our big guy. Mm -hmm. SVP, who's going to handle it great and be awesome. This year, they also got a new producer-director for Monday Night Football, which is really lagged behind the other shows in production, I think. Just not as good. Lagged even behind ESPN's college stuff like Saturday Night Football, which always looks like an awesome game. So they got
1: that. It didn't have the gravitas, It right? just didn't have
2: yeah. The, yeah, something about it just didn't feel like fell a little bit underbaked. So now it's like, oh, this is the Super Bowl team we've put together. Mm. And now we've got a couple of years to get it right, to get everybody moving on the same page, and then we unveil it. Like I said, in what's going to arguably be the biggest day in network history.
1: So I have a question about that. So that Super Bowl happens. You have Troy and you have Joe Buck and they're on ABC. Is there a secondary broadcast with like Eli Manning and Peyton Manning on ESPN? Or is it just a simulcast where they're both on the same, you know, one's on ESPN, one's on ABC, but it's the same broadcast. It's a
2: great question. So we're going to have the Nickelodeon Super Bowl alt broadcast (laughs) this year. So shout I think out to we, Noah Eagle. I mean, we've what, shattered what the flood, glass ceiling. Yeah. Noah, Noah really has. You know, it's like you got the Big Ten this year. <laughs> right. You got to just shatter the glass. So once we're in Super Bowl alternate broadcast territory, you're absolutely going to have the Mannings. Mm. I think
1: and and that's kind of like the world that we're into now where it's like you have your McAfee Mannings mm-hmm. alt cast and then you have you know your main traditional broadcast that feels comfortable you know Joe Buck's voice you know Troy Aikman feels familiar it's just a fascinating kind of setup that they have with Monday night football in general just being around them how excited are they to be in this ESPN world because it is different i mean obviously they got comfortable with Fox i think it's really
2: interesting for them because Again, you and I probably have had this experience at various places to go when you're the young guy somewhere and you start out as the young guy somewhere. You often feel like the young guy, even when you're not the young guy. anymore. Oh, yeah, of course. And people tend to see you as, oh, you're the intern. Yeah. I mean, Joe Buck <laughs> was there on day one. Right.
1: Of Fox boards, so And they like, knew his dad. Yeah. So you're like, you know, yeah. we, know we know your dad and you're the kid. Totally.
2: So he was carrying that around mm-hmm. and everything. And I think what, it's interesting to see them in an ESPN context because they're the solution to the problem the highest paid people in the network or among the highest paid people in the network I think, I think uh, Troy still has that designation that way. I don't know what quite what Pat McAfee makes, but let's say in the highest paid people, in the network, they're the people that came in to fix ESPN's NFL problem, yeah. at least on the announcing and production side. And, you know, they're in a way, I think, I don't know if pressure is the right word because they've just been calling games so long. I don't think they feel a lot of pressure, but I think there is a kind of expectation mm that they're going to bring something to that network, that they're important to ESPN in a way that's different than they were important to Fox. Yeah. And that makes sense.
1: It definitely does. And it's funny because I remember last year there was that uh, SVP Joe Buck moment where it was kind of like, they made a comment about his private jet. You know what I mean? And you could tell that maybe Buck got a little perturbed by it. How, I don't think so. By the you way, you don't think you no. think he was just laughing? About no, that? they
2: were they were just screwing. they were just busting each other. So that's jobs.
1: good too, because that that's the other part of this too. Because when you bring in the big outside talent, you also have to fall in and line with the people that have been there. So it does feel like if there is that connective tissue there, that makes the broadcast go to another level. When Joe Buck and SVB can rib each other and and make fun of each other, kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit with everyone.
2: Yeah, if we're cracking down on private jets. In sports broadcasting, we're, we're gonna have a tough time. There'll be, there be some big names. we <laughs> <People> are gonna, <laughs> we're gonna go be down. upset. Be a lot of people flying private.
1: Al Michaels will be upset. Oh though, for my sure.
2: God. I think Chris Collins would told me he mixed in some private jets here and there. <laughs> I mean, for sure, right? <laughs> of oh, the course. Fox, Fox pregame show. Yeah, you know, of course. That, the only way you there. can
1: slide in with that kind of energy is that you came on private jet. No, right? I mean, yeah. You don't have to go through any of the security stuff. I mean, well, and the
2: big thing is you get out that
1: night. Yes.
2: That's the big thing, right? Is if you have a night game. If you're an announcer, there's you can liberty. leave at midnight. I, and I'm fascinated by this, by the way, the <laughs> levels of announcer sort of luxury. Yeah, because you're already making a lot of money. Of course, well, if you and I were doing like the fourth best Big Twelve game, we'd be making good. Yeah, money. Yeah, we'd be good.
1: Yeah, but then you not private money, though. not private money.
2: <laughs> but then there's the thing of like I have my guys in the booth, mm-hmm. my spotters, mm-hmm. my people that I want to bring around, and I and the network is flying them to the game for me. Yeah, right. Bring right. my entourage around. And then we work. If you're up an a-
1: actor,s you have like a glam squad that flies with you. Yeah, you people. Yeah, you have, people. You have, you yeah, have my yeah, people, right. and
2: probably more than one person, mm-hmm. right? Maybe there's more than one. And then you get up another tier, and it's like, okay, we're flying private. So if I do a night game, I'm not getting out of Cleveland at 11:30 p.m. That's not happening unless I got my own plane over there, and then I'm getting out of Cleveland right after this game ends. So that's a big deal, right? I'll spend a night in a hotel. You know, certain presidential candidates, by the way, thought the same way about taking trips to Iowa. Right. I want to go home.
1: Yeah, get me out of here.
2: Uh but I'm fascinated by those just little touches.
1: I am too. One last thing on the the NFL broadcasting boost in general. Al Michaels yeah, is he, is he update on him? Is he is he happy with the decision to get there? Because th- I felt last year I felt we'll do really a
2: little check in on Al. Yeah,
1: I just want to do a check in because I love Al Michaels so much. But Thursday night, I just feel like it's almost like he went all the way to the top and then he just like circled back to the start. You know what I mean? I I don't know how yeah, else to say it.
2: I know it. It felt weird watching those horrible
1: games. I felt bad for him and Kirk Herbstreet. Oh, my God. There was
2: so much Russell Wilson. There was so much Russell Wilson inflicted on all of us (laughs) last year in so many
1: games. I hope that it's going to be more Sean Payton focused this year. And I think that's what he's doing. I think Sean Payton's saying all this stuff to kind of get the attention away from Russell. But who knows? Totally.
2: And the thing about Thursday night is I know it's crappy in terms of like NFL terms, especially compared to Sunday, the big Fox CBS Mm -hmm. games on Sunday afternoon. But it's still a big deal. I mean, if you're Al Michaels, again, you're not calling Big 12 here. Mm -hmm. You brought in a new (laughs) sports division at Amazon. You are calling Thursday Night Football. You got the night all to yourself. You got Herbie, who we love. So I just think, I don't know. I think the schedule's a little bit better this year. And I'm hoping, for his sake, he gets just
1: better games. I just hope he gets better games. Thursday's a tough ask for anyone, especially coming off if you played a Sunday game to get ready for Thursday. It just feels, always feels out of whack at some level. And then you have... This legendary broadcaster calling games we straight
2: off a of Super Bowl.:
1: Right, And it feels just a little out of whack, but again, nice check in with Al Michaels. We love him and appreciate him.:
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter.
1: quickly before we get out of here, it's week one of college football. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the big storylines of college football. Let's start. We're in Los Angeles. We got Caleb Williams in our backyard. Throws four touchdowns. Um, Including in his his that game. one that
2: was just unbelievable. A yeah, busted play. Yeah, right. And he looked like he was just standing still it, Threw the ball like 60
1: yards in the air. Easy money touchdown. USC's defense gave up 28 points. That, that was not, not good like, news. <laughs> um, but how do you feel about the Trojans? Lincoln Riley, uh, we know them well. I mean, even you from the Big 12 football days, you know Lincoln Riley or Or do we think this is a year that Caleb could repeat his Heisman?
2: That's a fascinating question. And it's like, it goes back to the thing our boss talks about all the time, which is who should win the Heisman and the voter (laughs) fatigue. Absolutely. Are we going to give it to this guy twice Mm -hmm. because it really is a lot of reluctance to do that, especially the Heisman, right? It's only one time. So I would be, I'd be interested in that as for USC, they're one game away from the playoff last year. Mm Mm-hmm. It's so, it's so, to me, I love college football because there's so much finality to it that you forget what happened. <laughs> I was having a conversation with somebody the other day. I was like, remember when Georgia almost lost to Ohio State? And Ohio State could have gone in there and trucked TCU and been the national champion last year.
1: And we talk about Ohio State a whole lot differently. What
2: a different world that would be mm-hmm. instead of like, ah, Ryan Day, what a disappointment he is. Mm-hmm. Like They were close. They were close, and SC was close. Again, does, does SC beat Georgia last year? I don't think so. But they were close to the playoff. And I don't see why and they were
1: up in that championship game early and they all the feelings were there. Totally. You thought USC was going to the playoff and then it was gone.
2: So yeah, I I mean there's this whole tier of maybe, maybe, maybe which includes my Texas Longhorns, where people can talk themselves into eleven and one, maybe ten and two. I'm I'm suspicious of that tier of teams <laughs> because one of them is my own. But uh sure. Sure, they could be there.
1: I was going to ask you about that. It does seem like, for college football's sake, when you talk about the brands, you have USC. They're in the fold. They have the Heisman winner um, trying to go for a repeat. You look at Texas. You got Arch Manning there. You got a lot of excitement about the program. People are expecting 10, 11 wins. Then you got Notre Dame. They play over in Ireland. Yep. Ireland, they looked incredible in that first game. Again, just the first game, but they just look like, okay, they could be a playoff contender. So you got those three brands all have a lot of optimism, all have a lot of hope, and they all have a lot of talent. Is that good for college college football absolutely
2: i mean i always think that i always think like you want the big brands and you also want the brands that are just loved and hated mm-hmm. like notre dame like notre dame yep. has a lot of that energy too but notre dame has a ton of that energy you know and notre dame there have been a lot of kind of kind of fakey notre dame teams you know where we get an eight no or seven one and eh, this team is this team really that good but the but the the sport's better when they're great Absolutely, mm. I just it just feels so divisive, you know, Bam is the same way. George is probably now the same way, where people will just like a lot of people will look at George and be like, "Oh no, not them again, but uh, they could repeat
1: sure. i mean that that's the craziest part too. I mean that you know, in this time where it's the Sabin era, right, and everyone talks about Nick Saban, right, it was, and I think a lot of people in the the common um, the common fan, right? They're just coming to grasp with the fact that, oh, Nick Saban's defensive coordinator, Kirby Smart, is now actually the best head coach and the best recruiter and going for a 3 P. right? I feel like the cycle was just catching up to that reality. It was like, one, it was Dabo, Dabo Saban, and now it's like Kirby Smart just took, took the <laughs> baton, and now he's off and running.
2: Bama fascinates me. Yeah. Because you can totally see it, you know, college- Uh, dynasties die or fade in a really interesting way Mm -hmm. and it's not always obvious at the time you catch up like three or four years later as you say but at the same time can't you see Saban just having an absolute screw you tour this year to everybody
1: well because especially last year he was arguing they should have been in the playoffs.
2: yeah and can't you just see that (laughs) happening this year I'm just being like you know okay Georgia LSU is a very trendy pick Mm -hmm. especially in the SEC West I like LSU a lot and can't you just see them just being like oh Oh, wait, they're
1: 11-1. Right. And they're in the playoffs. In case you forgot.
2: And they can win the, We are can win the national championship again.
1: And the fascinating part about Alabama is they kind of changed. I mean, obviously, the defense is the identity, but the fact that they were able to get these quarterbacks, I mean, you just look at, you know, it's a murderous row, um, you know, dating back to Hurts all the way up to Bryce Young, the number one pick who looks great so far in preseason. So Nick Saban figured out how to adapt and you know become kind of a different version of Alabama. I remember Texas in 2009, they play Alabama, Marcel Darius, Hurts, Colt McCoy, yep. and that was kind of like the end of the Mack Brown era, right? I mean, in that national championship game, do you think there's going to be a moment like that for Saban in Alabama where it's like you're going to be on the highest stage and then it just feels like... That's the runoff period, or or can he continue to kind of keep it elevated? That's
2: a really good question because remember about Texas, what they try to do is copy Alabama mm-hmm. and go to a run based offense. Meanwhile, Nick Saban was innovating and say, "Oh, a couple of years later, oh, I see what Johnny Football is doing around here. I see this. We need to spread it out. Yeah, we need to modernize we need space. our offense yeah. and then get those five star wide receivers, which just seem to just go into the <laughs> yeah. Alabama program like crazy. Mm-hmm. Throw the ball to him and let him from it make Julio place. Jones on, right? Uh, on so Devonte Smith. So I'm just like. I think Nick Saban is smart enough to just continually innovate. You know, college coaches, what happens is they get stuck in their ways. They get stuck in an offense. They get stuck in a style of recruiting a particular kind of player. And Saban just always struck me as the guy who's just never going to get stuck, who will never let himself get stuck. And as soon as he does, he will be on the set of game day as a personality rather than a football coach. Yeah. I think he will just absolutely walk when he senses that's happening
1: yeah speaking of personalities i have to ask because he is kind of the for lack of i mean i don't know what you want to call him but he's the biggest personality in college football deon sanders and i'm not saying that the the colorado team is <laughs> going to live up to Dude, what we, he we could have up. a lot
2: of russell wilson energy with some of those colorado a lot well, let's of national t- colorado games this i mean year.
1: vegas tends to know a lot and if you look at the line for their first game they're playing the buffaloes are going to play tcu who went to the national championship game the line i mean they're favored by 21 and a half points against colorado in this first game this is Dion. <laughs> first game i mean he pushed to have this game what happens if it goes sideways you know what i mean as far as like the media coverage and things like that i mean i I just feel like that whole situation might be a ticking time bomb it
2: might if you could imagine like a two and done three and done kind of run he might leave
1: like he might literally he if it does go that bad i could see him being like oh okay well it just doesn't work here but it could work in more familiar territory
2: you could also imagine the
1: opposite, right? Exactly. They have an so I okay, think that's why it's fascinating. You know, they
2: win six games this year. They, they had won, 85 new people. That's come what in. I mean. They win five <laughs> games, but they play better at the end of the year. And then next year, all of a sudden, they win eight. And you're mm-hmm. like, uh oh, how did that happen? Because he's a great recruiter. Right. And there's a certain magnetism. It's like, I want to go play for Coach Prime. Mm. I absolutely want to do this. And that, as we know in college football, sometimes that's enough to get you there. Right. You know, just magnetic coach. It's it's a coach-driven sport, not a school-driven sport.
1: That's college sports. That's yeah, kind of how it goes.
2: It's all everything.
1: Yeah. And uh, one last thing before I let you go, Brian. This is personal to you. uh Will we see Arch Manning this season?
2: Nah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the
1: most famous players in college football, mm-hmm. even though he hasn't played. We
2: will see him throw a
1: pass, I think. Okay.
2: I don't think you will see him play meaningful football. Things right. have gone very sideways. Against,
1: up big against like a small team. He comes in <laughs> and then, you know, throws a couple touchdown passes and garbage time. And then America's saying it's time for Mar- it's time for Arch Manning. Oh, to start. my God.
2: Uh, we're already saying that on the Texas message boards. because like He had it. like a 60 yard scramble during a scrimmage the uh-huh. other day. And let me just tell you and these, like you know web 1.0 <laughs> message boards people are like ah, here that's we our go. guy
1: that's all we got him. an era has begun right right it's this Manning is why time. we recruited him i love it i love it so much i'm excited for texas football i'm excited for college football he is brian curtis brian thanks so much for coming on the show
2: thank you as always for having me Tate.
1: All right. Joining us now on Through the Ringer, you've seen her here before. She is the great Katie Baker, a.k.a. Katie Bakes. Katie, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
3: Thanks for having me as always.
1: Yes, we get to talk about the U.S. Open and uh, we're talking tennis today. So I'm very excited about that. Um, We're going to talk about the biggest stars in tennis. But first, I want to talk about celebrities because those are the real stars in our life. Um, Who do you want to see showing up to the U.S. Open this year? We always get, you know, an array of celebrities. Like last year, I remember there was a photo of like Offset and Bella Hadid. You know, there's all these all these characters come out. Who do you want to see? What celebrity show up for the U.S. Open?
3: That's a good question. I always think about how if I were a celebrity, I would just go to like every sporting event. I would go to all the tennis, all the Olympics. <laughs> I'd be there for all of it. Um, I know. I like when you get a good New York, you know, the like the Jerry Seinfelds of the world, you know, yes. taking in a Mets game at Flushing, walking across the bridge, going over there. I always like when you get royalty involved, but I know that's more of a Wimbledon thing. Mm. Um, yeah. I like when you have like the weird, you know, people sitting next to each other, like Anna Wintour is next to, you know, someone that you wonder if she's ever heard of and, you know, as nodding politely. So, um, yeah, who are you? Who are you looking forward to?
1: I think it's always my answer to anything It's Larry David. I want Larry David there and I want his reactions and I want him to be annoyed by, you know, the balls bouncing or the some sort of noise that's going on or be asking about the ball boys and how much they made. I I want Larry David to be there and be upset. That's what I really want, to be aggrieved. I think that's good for America and that's good for the U.S. Open.
3: I feel like in the spirit of the U.S. Open, like you could imagine a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where... <laughs> It's one of those, you know, three AM games, and and he leaves the game, or he doesn't leave, or something, you know. And uh... he's
1: asleep. He's asleep in his <laughs> exactly. seat, and then, then every, and he It's the, he accidentally took a sleeping pill, and he's passed out. And everyone's like, "Oh!" And one of the most riveting matches ever. Here's Larry David's reaction, and he's asleep. That would be great. Uh, that's good TV. That's what we want. Let's talk about the stars on the actual court, because that is a big question right now in the world of tennis. Everyone is trying to figure out um, who the next star is. Um, I'll ask you that you know blanket statement. Who are the biggest stars right now in tennis?
3: Well, I mean, you still have, you know, I, I say this with love because I think I'm probably his age or older, but old man, you know, Djokovic and um <laughs> It's actually been really cool to see uh, Carlos Alcaraz um, kind of come onto the scene the way he has because I feel like it's enhanced uh, Djokovic's career. You know, he's kind of has something now that he wants to prove. And I think in the U.S. Open in particular, like it's not his, you know, top event. So I think he still feels like, even though he's proven so much in his career, he's born to prove, um, you know, this being the U.S., like obviously Coco Goff is someone that we, you know, are really... Looking to um, in this tournament to be a star. And, And she like definitely has that star power in my mind.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we'll talk about Coco a little bit. I want to talk about the changing of the guard because I think that was one of the, you know, seminal moments for me when I was younger back in 2001. I was a big Pete Sampras kid, as a lot of us were. Everyone loved Pete Sampras, right? And in the world of tennis, it's always kind of been the rule of 10, right? You get 10 years to be, you know, a part of a dynasty. Bjorn Borg goes for 10 years in the 70s. Then McEnroe comes along. Then McEnroe has his time. The baton goes to Pete Sampras. And then Sampras passed it to Roger Federer. And then obviously you had Nadal and Joe they come in uh, in the latter part of Federer's run. But do we think that we're getting a changing of the guard right now in real time with Djokovic being able to pass that baton to Alcaraz?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been like really fun to watch. I mean, you know, you mentioned all these eras and, um, you know, the the kind of thing missing has been like American tennis. It's been, I think, 20 years since Andy Roddick won. And there was just a big profile of him and it's that kind of highlighted that again. But Honestly, like in the past few years, I haven't even noticed that so much because it's been exciting to see this new generation come up, some of whom are American. Um, But you know, like for example, with Alcaraz, I mean, last year at the U.S. Open, my favorite sporting event of like all of 2022 was Yannick Sinner, Carlos Alcaraz, in the U.S. Open. I think it was like the quarterfinals; it wasn't even the final. Um, And they just had like an epic match, and that's like a player in Yannick Sinner that actually can kind of go blow for blow for blow with. Um, Carlos in a way that like a lot of other players haven't been able to. So even seeing that rivalry developing has been really fun.
1: Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned the the drought for the American tennis star, right? We've all been waiting for. I mean, I remember Roddick and Marty Fish, right? They were coming up together. Everyone was like, these two guys are going to be the the dominant figures in tennis. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, this Swedish guy, Roger Federer and the Spanish guy, you know what I mean? And the doll and the rest is kind of history there. And weirdly, because Alcaraz is a Nike guy or, you know, Federer is a Nike guy, it does feel like the American audience uh, somehow ends up pulling for these guys for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they're wearing, you know, the most visible American brand, but is there pressure for an American to win the U S open at this point? And right now it doesn't look like we have many options. Tiafo is probably the best option at plus 6,500.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like there's definitely pressure, but I also think, you know, there's not a guy who the pressure is on. And I think in some ways I was reading a quote by Taylor Fritz, who is kind of an interesting story because he's, he should, he sort of should be that guy. And. You know, he's been in the top 10 for, I think, most of the year. Um, but he hasn't really, like, gotten to that point. You know, I think he won Indian Wells a couple of years ago or maybe last year. And um, But he was saying, like, when any American does well, it actually helps all the Americans because they all think, like, all right, if he's doing that well, I can do that well. Because none of them really see each other as, like, that much better than the others. You know what I mean? So I think when you see someone like Chapa do a run last year, it gives them all like that competitive drive of like, all right, well, I can beat this guy. I can do this. Um, but I think there is pressure. I mean, I think obviously the women with Serena for so long, like we had that American success and, um, you know, Coco Gauff is someone and Jessica Bagula is also someone who's like really hoping to like make that leap this year um, on the American side. But, you know, because you have so many entrants, there's always going to be some dark horse that makes a run. I think Tommy Paul, not that he's that big of a dark horse, but I think he's someone that could be, you know fun to watch
1: yeah absolutely and i do feel you mentioned coco golf and i feel like coco um, she has the kind of personality and the ability to be branded and, and be able to be, like, shared with the U.S. public and everyone kind of falls in love with her, right? She's got a great story. I remember her parents in the crowd, like, reacting to points, you know, early on in, a career, or in her career. Um, So she kind of endeared herself to the audience. I mean, do, is there a world in which, you know, Coco, she's plus 650 to win this, but um, does it look like she has a nice draw to go for a run? Because a lot of times, it's it, I mean, as dumb as it is, it is matchups when it comes down to tennis.
3: It's funny, like the U.S. Open tweeted that their IBM algorithm robot (laughs) determined that she had one of the best draws, but she's also in the same draw as the number one, uh, Igo Oshantek, and um, who she just was able to kind of beat, I think, for the first time in like eight tries um, in the final and uh, in the most recent tournament. And so, you know, she has that confidence, but it's also like, you look at her draw, you're like, it doesn't seem like it's the easiest draw. Um, so you know, I think most likely you will see them meet um, to determine who will be the semifinalists out of that quarter.
1: Yeah, I uh, I do like the draw, but like you said, I mean, there's some big you know names in that group. Yeah, and, um, like, you and know we've all, Yeah, right. Like it's just not a. It, even though IBM's machine may say that, I'm not sure I'm believing <laughs> in whatever IBM's machine is. It doesn't look that way when you look at it on paper with the naked eye. So I don't quite totally. see that. We've also seen unranked players in the finals um you know that happened in 2021 uh do we is there any world in which too where maybe there's there's room for some new stars to come to the forefront because that seems to happen as well at these majors
3: Yeah there's some like you know there's a few who could kind of come out like and none of them are you know I don't think they're unranked but like Linda Benčić is one who's like sort of interesting um Sam Sinova is another one who I think is like um you know, she's like top 15 at age 24 or something like that. Um, so, but I think, I don't know. I feel like I would expect like one of the somewhat top seeds to, um, pull through in this tournament. I mean, Salva is an interesting one because she's lost like three semifinals. Um, I think this year alone, I think three sets. And then some of them she was, she won the first set. So she's got that like chip on her shoulder. Um, You know, so, you know, and uh, like I mentioned, the American Jessica Pagula, who's, you know, not to take away from her accomplishments, but just for listeners who may not know, like her dad is the owner of the Bills and the Sabres. And she's been on the scene for a really long time, but but has never really kind of cracked a certain um, echelon. I I don't think she's like gotten to a semi, although I could be wrong on that. But, you know, she's someone who has a, a potentially good draw in her quarter. So we'll see
1: yeah, she's got great odds as well to win this thing. Mm-hmm. So she's another name to throw into the mix. Sloane Stevens is also a name um, that we all know in women's tennis. She's playing right now. I saw she lost her first set. So if you're listening to this, you probably know the end result. But just in general, that's another name I think that, you know, you want to put on the forefront that people know, you know, about certain tennis players. Speaking of uh, the top American tennis players, Serena Williams. Um, I feel like that is why we're having this conversation. You know what I mean? That's kind of like the the reason we've gotten to this point trying to figure out the future because the greatest women's player uh, has left the game. What do you think Serena's doing this week? Is she watching? Um, And, and what's, what's kind of like, where does she stand right now with her legacy and how, how large she loomed over the sport for so long?
3: Well, she has a brand new second baby. So, there you, go. you know, love to you, Serena. Um, yes. You know, um, as any second time parents know, it makes your first child suddenly seem like a giant mutant. So um, anyway, <laughs> I'm sure she's doing that. And then, you know, actually Venus is is uh, is playing. I think she's playing today. So I don't know what the outcome of that will be. But, um, you know, she's still playing. I mean, I just, you know, those sisters, I just feel like I've grown up alongside almost. And so, uh, you know, her legacy is like. It just is the legacy in my mind. I mean, obviously, there's so many other great women that came before her. But to me, she's my contemporary. She's someone who just really like showed what it could be to be like a dominant woman in the sport um for so long. I mean, it's kind of crazy how long she did it for. Um so yeah, I think she's she's probably watching. I mean, maybe we'll I doubt we'll see her there, but you never know maybe if Venus oh. made a run she'd she'd make an appearance.
1: I was going to ask you about that because I I do remember like early, you know, with Tiger Woods, not to make that one to one comparison, but with Tiger, it felt like he was almost, um, you know, a little standoffish, didn't want to kind of put anyone under his wing. And then as he kind of got older, he started, you know, working with Roy McIlroy and working with some of these younger guys. And now you see like he and Justin Thomas have this great relationship and he, and he kind of works with some of these young Americans. Is there a road in which we see Serena do that a little bit too, where maybe she comes back and maybe tries to work and mentor some of these younger players?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, at the, you know, I'm sure she does some element of that now, but like, I think a lot of her kind of, efforts and priorities have been like, she's really become such a business woman and focus on all these ventures. But Yeah, exactly. She's a brand. Um, and, you know, and, but I do think like, that's the kind of thing that, you know, especially if US Senate wants to continue to develop players like that, you know, they have a pretty good track record of having former players really come back and be in the fold. And um, I would imagine it would be the same with her. I'm sure she probably wants a little bit of a break, but Um, but yeah, especially as her own kids are getting older and whether or not they go into tennis, just like, I, I wouldn't be, you know, I would, I would expect that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We need that. I think that would be great for the sport. And also it's good to have, you know, the visibility of Serena outside of just the brand stuff. Another big name in women's tennis that I feel like a lot of people, the general fan may ask about Naomi Osaka. Um, I know that she had a kid and then she was back to training. She's not playing right in the U S open.
3: No, not that I, I don't believe that. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that, that's, uh, I, no, mean, that, I mean, that like, was when you mentioned name.
3: Serena, like, I mean, it was, I, that still remains like such a bummer to me how that like one uh, final transpired. Um, and I really don't think it was like malicious on anyone's part, but like to, you know, because I know Naomi Osaka is someone that really looked up to her and to be able to play her was such a big deal. And then, you know, it's always hard with the US Open. You have like these crowds that are really pulling for certain people and it's not against the other people, um, but it can feel that way. But Yeah, I know, you know, Naomi Osaka is always like, when you talk about star power, like, right, she's kind of, you know, at that level of international, just when she says something, people listen, and and she says many things and people listen, and it's, um, you know, a real asset to the sport and to just sort of sport in general.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, she's just one of those names and figures that kind of come to mind when you talk about people that can move the sport, right? If you had to pick, uh, you know, if you close your eyes and you envision who the winner of the 2023 Women's U.S. Open, uh, is there a name that comes to mind or someone that you like so far or that you feel like is going to have their kind of week there in New York?
3: I think I'm going to go with Coco Gauff. I feel like it.
1: I like Coco. She yes. just feels
3: like she has momentum, confidence. She'll have the crowd behind her. Like, I know it's kind of like, but I just, you know, I like if I close my eyes, I can see it. I hope to see it. Um, yeah. But I mean, like, like that said, I mean, I feel, I feel bad. I barely even mentioned, uh, you know, because she's such an amazing player. Her serve has been getting only better this year. Um, you know, she is not someone to just be like sort of counted aside at all. So, um, but you know, I, I just think Coco's coming off the momentum. I think I could just picture it happening.
1: Yeah. And she's got the third best odds to win this thing. She's going to be the fan favorite, as you talked about. The crowd is a big part of the U.S. Open and, uh, you know, all those celebrities that come into the fold. They're gonna, Jerry Seinfeld's going to be cheering for Coco Goff. You know what I mean? I don't know how much he personally will have the connection to her, but just as a fan there in the building, you end up rooting for somebody. It kind of just is how it plays out. Um, I think a lot of people on the men's side, they want to see uh, Djokovic and Alcaraz. They want to see that matchup again after what we just witnessed at Wimbledon an incredible match. That match reminded me a lot of Sampras and Nadal back in 01. I, I just thought it was a literal changing of the guard in the moment, and Alcaraz delivered. Um, Djokovic. Djokovic is still the favorite. Alcaraz has the second best odds. Do we expect Alcaraz to make a statement here in New York?
3: Well, so yeah, I mean that that rivalry has been so fun. You know, it, in Wimbledon, I honestly thought uh, Djokovic was going to come back and do that thing he does and win it. it just I was rip like, your heart. I was out. like, this son yeah. of a gun, he's doing it again. <laughs> um, but you know, but then he did uh, just beat him. I think in Cincinnati, I could. It might have been a different tournament, but um, so they have this great rivalry going on. That said, I think maybe, you know, it could be, you know, maybe Medvedev can kind of slide in there. I know he's a new dad too. So he's probably not at the total top of his uh, peak form, but, you know, he's really good on hard court. Um, This is his tournament. He's past winner, past finalist, past semi. Um, You know, if you're looking for someone who's not one of those guys, not that it's like that much of a thing to say, look for the number three guy, but there is kind of a, you know, a gulf between them. One that he readily acknowledges and I think doesn't mind. Um, But, you know, that said, I wouldn't, I also wouldn't mind seeing that rivalry continue. You know, it's just really fun to watch. And like I said, I feel like it's elevated Djokovic's career and probably like prolonged it too, to have that, you know, whippersnapper challenging him.
1: Yeah, it kind of feels like, uh, you know, like in Ricky Bobby when you know the French driver wants to come over to find like someone that can finally, you know, go toe to toe with him. It does feel like they have found a kindred spirit there, and he's like he has a respect for Alcaraz and he's willing to to go and spar with him, which is good for the sport. Um, those guys are going to be incredible for quite some time. Um, I know Djokovic is kind of viewed as the villain um, for a myriad of reasons. We don't have to get into the details of that, but Alcaraz seems like. He is beloved by pretty much everybody. Obviously, they love him in Spain, but he's been um, adopted by American fans, people, in you know the UK loved him because of Wimbledon. I mean, how? What is the likability? What is the Q scores on Carlos Alcaraz right now? They seem high.
3: Well, totally high, and I think that's almost like going to be the challenge for him because, like he he was saying in a press conference this time around, that now when he comes to New York, you know, there's a not just New Yorkers. You know, New Yorkers are pretty good at kind of letting celebrities go by, but he said, there's a lot of Spaniards in New York. There's a lot of Latin American people that instantly recognize him and, um, and are happy to say so. And so, you know, he's, he's at that part of his career where he has, he's an international celebrity kind of suddenly, um, obviously he's been building for the past couple of years, but he's in that realm now. So, um, you know, managing that is part of the, part of the game of being a superstar. And, um, I think he can manage it for sure. He's, seems of a great attitude and all that sort of thing. But it is interesting to see that he's starting to notice that.
1: All good stuff. She's the great Katie Baker. Katie, thanks so much for coming on the show.
3: Thanks, the great Tate. Bye.